welcome to Talking Sense, the Sensibility Podcast. I'm your co-host, Erin. And I'm your other co-host, Kat. And this is our first episode. <laughs> Buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Yeah. So how was this born? How did we start this? How did we actually meet? Like, I know we how met we in meet? person after speaking for a long time, but like, did we ever really even talk to each other before you started the, like, the sensibility blog? Um, yeah, so we, I think we, like, properly met through um, setting up the sensibility blog. Um, and then, yeah, finally, once... Um, and, <laughs> such a weird year. <laughs> finally, once we were... Just the, saying the phrase, finally, once I was allowed to go to Edinburgh... <laughs> I know. And I was going to go to Glasgow today, but damn Rangers fans. Anyways, I haven't gone to Glasgow yet, but you came to Edinburgh. Yeah, so I came to Edinburgh. Um, so that was for, actually, it was for our Republic. And then we went to the beach. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I suppose, like, shout out to our Republic, which we're both also members of, uh, supporting a um, Scottish Republic and the monarchy. Um an, an idea-rich environment. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we guess we actually only officially met through our Republic. Um, in person. And then, um, in person, yes, we'd already met a lot on Discord. Um, so we only, and, um, yeah, and working on the Sensibility Project together. Um, yeah, but um, I think we hit it off, yeah, because we're both, both in our 30s, both women, both immigrants from North America, both students, <laughs> both from, like, quite rural backgrounds. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Sometimes it's like we share a brain, but that brain has yes. like lived two different lives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but a lot of our perspectives are so similar that it's like you don't always find that when you live some in a different country, really. And most of the yeah. people I know yeah. and hang out with and talk to are at least 10 years younger than me because I think that's just life as a grad student. No, that's the same with me. Like, almost all of my friends are like 10 years younger than me because that's like yeah being a mature student you just end up with the other students um and yeah it's partly that that's partly also just having progressive politics like there is an age bending thing i think and if you have like pretty lefty politics you're just gonna end up around younger people because that's who's open there are demographics at play there (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so yeah we just we don't have comments on the sensibility blog but we want people to write in With opinion pieces, response pieces, whatever, you know, it's open for anybody. We also want people who want to talk to us, you know, to come and talk with us on the podcast. If if you write something and if we think it's thought provoking or if it grabs our attention, like we want to talk to you um, because we have different perspectives on on Scotland, Scottish politics, Scottish independence. You know, some people might not support Scottish independence. They might have good reasons. Um, But we want to expand our horizons and talk to more people and Mm -hmm. learn. I love learning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Since the grad student. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So hopefully this can be a space um, to talk about, um, yeah, the the, the issues happening in Scotland, Scottish politics, about um, interesting pieces from the sensibility blog, um, about what's what's absolutely eating us about um, what's happening in the news. Um, and yeah, to expand our, our perspectives um, a little bit. The, the format is going to be that we are sort of your your main hosts and we'll be 
posting every episode and we'll have sort of a rotating, sometimes just us, most most of the times rotating guests. Um, We might have some co-hosts. Might have some co-hosts. Yeah, rotating guests, maybe some co-hosts. Yep. Um, So um, I'm Erin at Shunta on Twitter. Um, I'm an immigrant from Canada. I'm a PhD student. Um, And I've been a member of SMP off and on, um, currently on, since... um, since the referendum um and um that's it really i think well what what's your phd in oh um my phd is it's in history and i study um youth justice and child and adolescent psychiatry in the united states um since 1945 what i'm interested in is how we apply like psychiatric and psychological and like medicalized language to correctional processes in a way that sort of tries to like disguise um what's you know that it that it is like a coercive system and try to like dress it up in the guise of like rehabilitation and treatment when we don't really provide any of that and how it individualizes sort of the, the deviance onto the sort of individual quote unquote sort of like delinquent or criminal um, doing air quotes you can't see them um, rather than like looking at our like broader societal problems so that's that's what I study <laughs> I mean yeah we are like brain twins sometimes because all that kind of stuff is very <laughs> much of interest to me um, so yeah so my name's Kat I I'm on Twitter it's Kat underscore Carrie uh cat with a k whatever we'll we'll put it on the thing i but so i am from america i'm from wisconsin go badgers um or as my husband (laughs) likes to say go badgers because he likes to be put go badgers go packers don't you know so i moved to scotland almost five years ago um uh, I've I've really supported Scottish independence since uh, I first learned about it, and I just always kind of background supported it. But after living here, it became very apparent things were set up, you know, to limit the people. It was just not a just system, um, so it made me support it more. And I was kind of iffy on joining a party. I, it took me a long time. I did a lot of grassroots yes stuff, uh, but I found it frustrating. I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere. I felt like we were repeating a lot of stuff and I wanted to do more. So I did, I joined the SNP in uh, 2020, the very beginning of it, right before lockdown. Uh, My friend who took me with him to join to his branch meeting was like, yeah, I was kind of worried because it wasn't the that wasn't the most logical or maybe the best time for a progressive to join the S and P, but so it's been a it's been quite the experience. But <laughs> we're on a good track. If we got to keep going, but I think we're on a good track. So I'm the women's officer of Edinburgh Central. We just flipped the district. Yay! Um, I'm also the national secretary of the S and P Socialists, which is like our green wing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that are in the SNP. <laughs> um, and you know who told me that is somebody that's in the Green Party. <laughs> so if that's something uh, other SNP members are listening and interested in, get a hold of me because <laughs> we would love to have you. Um, uh, I am a grad student at the University of Edinburgh. So I, I first moved here to do a PhD in psychology. So I did my master's in psychology and I started my PhD and then I said, academia is not for me permanently and I wanted to do something with the things I studied 
Uh, and it was like getting more women in STEM and, and keeping mm-hmm. women from quitting STEM fields, which is a, a huge problem. Um, so now I study international and European politics. That has been a very fast mm-hmm. learning curve. It's very interesting to learn about, right? Um, so I am, after a few stops and starts due to the mm-hmm. pandemic and mental health and child rearing, um, I am now back at it and getting to work, even though I've been at work. Yeah, I guess I probably should have said something about like my SNP posts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So I mean, um, yeah, so not quite as varied a list as, as, as yours, but obviously doing the podcast and the blog. And I'm also the um, treasurer of Out for Independence, so which is the SNP's LGBTQ wing. Yeah. <laughs> and I am boringly terminally cishet <laughs> you know like when you're married for so long or like you and you're with your partner it doesn't even kind of I, I just kind of forget about it but I did yeah. one of the reasons I moved here is because I I grew up where like if my nieces or nephews ever came out I'd be raising them myself put it that way um yeah yeah. One of the best yeah. things that we could do, like when we first moved here, we took our kids to the Pride Fest. So like we're two straight people. We don't know what to do, yeah. like to teach our kids <laughs> values that we treasure. And that's like people are people <laughs> and you don't judge them based on who they love yeah. or what they look like. You just, you mm-hmm. know, if they're jerks, mm-hmm. they're jerks. And it's not because they're gay or straight or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like that's been really great. And, you know, being in a uni, living in Edinburgh, being in progressive politics, like... I, I, queer politics are near to dear my heart, even though I come as a amateur outsider <laughs> who tries to not make too many mistakes. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. LGBTQ people are a perpetual minority, like we'll never be more than like a small fraction. So, I mean, we need the cishets on board. So thank you. <laughs> oh, I just help as much as I can. <laughs> Good lefty stuff. Well, now that you have some background on us. Next, we're going to talk about Kenmuir Street and the events that happened on Thursday. And then we're going to wrap it up like we hope to do every episode with some current political beefs. So starting with Kenmuir Street. This is good because then you can kind of tell me what what happened in Glasgow. Because I was there as well. Yeah. Well, like, so I got a I got a WhatsApp going get to Kenmuir Street. It was information of like preventing eviction. Uh, so I didn't really know what was going yeah. on, and then it got bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah, so from what I understand what happened, a couple of other people from the street had already gone out. Someone from either someone from Unity Network and someone from No Evictions Network saw the tweet and um, told them to call Unity Network, and No Evictions Network started retweeting it, and it just blew up. Um, and... So, so I know that like at first it was just like a few neighbors who were out in the street. Quite shortly after those few neighbors showed up, um, the van man, whose name I cannot recall, arrived and wedged himself under the van so that they couldn't just disperse the few people that were there because they couldn't drive the van away anyway, because he was... The Batman was wedged underneath it. I feel like I should look up his name to make sure that he deserves credit. No, he he um, said he wanted to stay anonymous. Okay. Um, okay. He, if he, he wants to stay anonymous, we will leave him anonymous. Yeah, and there was an article where he's talking about, uh, like, the immigration officers all leaned on the bus, so it, like, crunched down on him and stuff. So, oh like, God. He, he said the people that were, so I'm sure Declan and the other neighbors, uh, they grabbed blankets for him right away because, like, he just kind of went under there. 
and then he was just kind of stuck. Yeah. And then somebody brought a camel yeah. back to like f- give him water because he couldn't turn his head. Oh my God. Because he was under there basically from I think about 10 a.m. until until the wow. the men were released. So that was, I was there when they were released. It was about six. So oh, wow. Um, yeah. It just kind of goes to show what kind of reach a single person has. Yeah. I think that's the big lesson of of the Cadmere Street protest is that we might not feel like we have a lot of individual power, but um, for all of the sort of negativity and toxicity on on social media, it gives us this amazing reach to connect to other people and um, you know, all of us who have met through political organizing or through social media have more connections than we think we do to um, to more people than we think. Um, I saw a really great thread um, on Twitter, sort of as a sort of postmortem of this whole thing, about how this was a spontaneous protest. Um, you know, it just came out of a few neighbors seeing what happened um, and, and grew, but at the same time, it's the kind of spontaneity that's only possible because of decades of groundwork. Um, so groups like the No Evictions Network and all sorts of um, mutual aid and political organizing and self-organizing and uh, migrants' rights organizing that's been happening for for decades to produce this kind of, this kind of moment um, because it was totally reliant on neighbors knowing what to look out for, neighbors knowing people on social media being able to reply immediately saying, call Unity Network, call No Evictions Network. People um, knowing that you can stand up to them. There being information to give people immediately saying, actually the police aren't allowed aren't allowed to assist with immigration enforcement. Um, if it wasn't for all of the groundwork done by activists for years and years and years, it's, this couldn't have happened. So I think it's really interesting um, just to think about... Um, how much work goes into shifting the culture and informing like a mass amount of people to be able to produce this kind of result. It tells me I need to show a little bit of patience to people who are like, if I say something <laughs> and I'm just trying to make a point, people are like, actually, sometimes I get annoyed. Sometimes it's helpful, but sometimes it's helpful to other people. And I just have to remember that. <laughs> sometimes, like, I just want to say something. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> it has shown us the value of the long, slow work of shifting culture. And that everybody has a little bit of expertise in one area, maybe. Or, like, just keep your ears open and you'll learn something. Um, Yeah. So what was it like when you got... Like, I want to hear about your experience there. Because I was just watching from Edinburgh, like, really excited. And texting people I knew that were there. So, annoyingly, I got there just before it ended. Um, So I had to to work. um, And... Um, basically I got off work and went like as soon as I could and, uh, picked up some friends along the way. And, um, we thought that we were going to be in for the, like, the long haul because we did not know how long it is that they're allowed to keep them before releasing them. So we were like getting ready to go be the evening shift, right? So we like packed up a bag of like bottles of water and sweaters and mittens and like all sorts of like warm things to go and sit all night. And then we got there basically just as they were saying, if everyone disperses, we'll let them go. And the mood was extremely like, no, you won't. <laughs> yeah, like, nah. No, if we, we, if we leave, you're just driving away with them. We're not leaving. 
Um, and then <laughs> this is actually kind of amazing. I got there and got kind of into the into the crowd just inside of the van, just as they opened the doors <laughs> and let them out. Um, so my experience of it was like very brief, unfortunately, but um, just being there even that short time, um, there's so many people from like, it was the it was the best of Glasgow. It is what makes me love this city so much. It was people there with like their babies and their dogs and people from like every community and like girls in their like beautiful dresses who are going to go to eat celebrations who'd stopped to go to the protest. And um, <laughs> it's just, it was just like a whole, like it's just like everything that makes Glasgow amazing and everything that makes the South side such an amazing neighborhood. And um, you know, there, there was, um, some guys from, I think the, the mosque down the end of the street who'd set up a, a, a like a, a snacks and water table. There was like, like, it was just, it was just really lovely. And everyone was just seemed to, seemed to know what they had to do in terms of like, there was, there was quite a crowd, not particularly distanced around the van, but I mean, that's just what it had to be. The police were sort of on the fringes. You couldn't really spread out much more. And Everyone was, uh, well, they were on the fringes and surrounding the van. Um, and, um, but other than that, like, everyone was, like, trying to stay distanced. Everyone was wearing masks. Um, they were, like, trying to be super responsible. Um, but just, like, the moment that the doors opened, the cheer from the crowd was just, like, I've never been to a successful protest before, right? A lot of the times <laughs> we're going to protests, it's um, it's solidarity with Palestine, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which is pretty intractable. Or it's um, you know, solidarity with the protesters in Belarus, or it's like independence protesting the police bill, or it's independence yeah. or it's protesting the policing bill in England. It's like these things that are huge and long term struggles. I've never been to like a successful direct action before, and just the moment. Of the whole crowd screaming and people start chanting, you know, the people united will never be defeated. And I've been in a million crowds chanting that. I've never been in one where it sounded like everyone believed it. The home office fucked up because we know we can win now. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah, they really did. So, like, <laughs> when they walked them down the street, like, the scenes of that to me were just as, like, that was as... Um, yeah uplifting is just watching them come out like that was great but then yes. watching them walk like protect the guys as they walked down to the mosque was like kind of where I yeah. kind of got emotional just watching it from you know yeah. my phone yeah and this is also incidentally another moment of what makes Glasgow on the south side so great because this is like like interfaith action because the guys are actually Sikh right so um but they had you know sanctuary in the mosque down the road um yeah so this is like some like really lovely like, just, like, <sighs> Glasgow's such a great, diverse community where just, like, everyone wants to get along and help each other. And, yeah. Um, we've got another fight on our hands, though, because I don't know if you've seen it, but their landlords are affecting them now. Well, and also, um, there were two dawn raids that day. I mean, I one, one of them missed. was successful, yeah. yeah, because the guy was at a homeless shelter um, temporarily and... That's what they're doing. They're kicking, they're evicting them, hoping that, you know, at a homeless shelter, there's no neighbors to notice. That's, yeah, appalling. And yeah, because of the pandemic, it has made it harder for people to go through visa processes and to to get everything together. And there are delays and 
like yeah because the two guys the two guys that were in, in the band like they've apparently been here for like a decade like well the other thing is that um because i am on a student visa and you know i've lived here almost five years now and I had to take an interruption that would normally make me have to go home. Well, like the home office does have things in place to extend you under special circumstances. And it wasn't like we had a lawyer. We wrote to our MP and I had the university uh, immigration services. And we got um, like a six, eight week extension because I had to be homeschooling my kids. And then when we renewed, we just renewed our visas. We didn't have to go back to America like normal because of the pandemic. So it seems like it's very uh, focused and designed to other or to make it harder for certain people. Yeah. And grad students fall into the category of, oh, no, we'll, we'll help you. We'll keep you here, grad students. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, first world grad students will definitely sort your problems out. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just got my indefinite leave to remain and I got it faster than I expected I would have, presumably because there's less visas getting processed. Um, and that's the thing, like, they, if they've been here, like, 10 years, 16 years, like, that is eligible for indefinite leave to remain under the long residency route, like, regardless of where they've been here. And the fees on indefinite leave to remain are so extreme now relative to what they were when people would have started their immigration pathways. Like... Um, how do you expect the, the one guy who got, who actually, the raid was successful, um, from the homeless shelter, how is he supposed to afford fees to regularize his status, even if he's been here long enough to qualify for long residency? Like, it's Why don't they have crowdfunders that are as successful as the ones to sue MPs? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I know. you know what I mean? Like, I know. And, and the other thing is that... Um, it really showed me, and I mean, you and I both know how much red tape bullshit there is mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to visas and, and the home office. Like, they've streamlined a lot of things, and they did it quickly, and because of the British establishment has got to tell you, they knew. It is a, it is a barrier, a class-based barrier, and, you know, if I didn't have funding to be here and to go to school, I would never be able to do it. Yeah, I mean, I came on a student visa too. It's one of the only accessible routes to immigration, actually. Because I couldn't... So I married a Scottish man in 2011, and I came here as a student in 2012. I had to come as a student and not as his partner because of the minimum earnings requirements. Really? They had those for Canada? So basically, I was still finishing my master's back in Canada, so I wasn't coming until I finished that, which would have been summer 2012. Unbeknownst to me, because I was just like a student in Canada, not thinking about these things, that's when they implemented that your partner... Your, your British partner who's here needs to have a certain level of earnings for to have a foreign spouse come in and he didn't have that level of earnings and so I had to get a student visa instead so I didn't get to start my spousal visa route until five years ago even though I've been here for eight years yeah the like honestly I mean I always just kind of supported Scottish independence but like what really clarified and cemented it was with dealing with the immigration system and then knowing that like Scotland has a different education criteria and they have different rules than in England and that the home office has stuff set up and they know the school knows it can't do anything about it and they'll tell you and they'll let you know hey we're trying to do everything we can but like the home office doesn't care and the home office doesn't care at all about like I mean okay like cards on the table I'm pretty much like a like no borders human movement is a human right 
person. But, um, I mean, even if we're talking within the sort of borders and visas and things paradigm that sort of exists, Scotland's needs are different. And Scotland needs people. And there's no... And, like, also the things like the, the earning thresholds and stuff, those are all set for, like, the cost of living in, like, the south of England. They're not set for the cost of living, like, in Glasgow. Or the Highlands. Yeah. And, I mean, like... So, like... Yeah, like, there was a... Was it was it the Australians? This Canadians or Australians that were running a a, a little village shop in a, a like a village in the Highlands, and they got deported because they were on entrepreneur visas and their earnings weren't high enough for the threshold for entrepreneur visas from running the shop. Which like yeah, they run a village shop in the Highlands. What do you want them to be making enough making the kind of money you'd have to make to live running a shop in London? Like they were clearly financially comfortable. They were providing a service to their village. And Did they save them from getting deported? Um, so they and their five kids were told they had to go back to Canada because, um, their earnings from their, um, shop weren't high enough and weren't employing enough people to maintain it, even though they were, like, the village lost their shop and coffee store, basically, because they sent this couple home. And you know what? I think that this is, like a point to make maybe during the next referendum is when they say, look at you economically, look at how dependent you are on us. And it's like, well, when your immigration rules stack the deck to make us dependent on you, like you have to think, it's not just economic levers and macroeconomics and like international relations. You're a Commonwealth immigrant. There's EU uh, citizens who live here. Mm -hmm. I'm American, so I'm still a level of privilege, right? But the the different tiers of how difficult they make it to live here that the British state yeah. does. Yeah. No one should have to go through what the Home Office makes immigrants to this country go through. Yeah. It's it's at all bad. There's like a lecturer in Glasgow whose visa status got messed up just recently. They were talking about ordering her to leave. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. She like put her visa paperwork in like 16 hours late or something. And and there is supposed to be grace periods on this stuff, you know, like um, but you're like, hey, full disclosure, I've had to renew visas like three or four times now due to different things. And part of it, part of it is it's really difficult to study and keep up with all the ridiculous requirements they make of international students and to study with that like low level anxiety of like, because I've got kids in, in primary school, like that would up that would ru- ru- ruin their lives it would rip them out of everything they know my daughter doesn't remember america you know and like even though i we planned this we saved for 2 years and before coming here but it seems like they're keeping me from getting back out in the workforce because it is so hard to feel secure and safe and like you can just concentrate on school yeah I know that's one of the things that's made my PhD take so much longer. I mean, like, I'm not even going to start about international student fees. but um... And that's the thing is I have funding because I was in the military in the U.S. Uh, disclaimer, I am not a warmonger. I am not anything that people seem to put on people that were in the military. <laughs> like, nobody's a bigger advocate of, like, non-conflict than me. Um, or not many, I guess. But... Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I get a small stipend. I, I was medically retired, so I get a small pension, and that's what we live on. Uh, and actually, when Trump was president, they stopped my pension mm-hmm. for a year, and we had to eat, like, peanut butter and jelly for a year. So 
Oh shit. Oh god. That's horrible. Wages, but because of the pandemic and cuz you know veterans that they they probably didn't care about counting like a lot of homeless veterans and stuff like that, you know. God. And they pay us that's once horrible. a month, which is not great. So then, you know, that's hard for anybody. Like that's hard for anyone let alone Yeah. I mean, especially people who have like like, I mean, like, we all know what the, the pipeline in, in like, the U.S. can be from chronic pain to prescribed, like, opiates that were, like, pushed on doctors by um, Purdue Pharma and then, like, suddenly withdrawn and then, like, yeah. Yeah, that, and, oh God. like, I was somebody who was on pain management at on and off, like, from the military doctors, too. I would get, like, injections and stuff to block my nerve signals, and it... You know, like, so living here is actually part of my treatment because I get to walk everywhere. And it, it, it makes me okay. But, like, America's not designed for that either. You cannot walk everywhere. Like, no. it's so crazy. Yeah. I, had, I, was, I was thinking about the, like, unwalkability of America and the way that the neighborhoods are laid out in the U.S. Actually, when I was thinking about Kenmuir Street, because that is, you need dense housing to make that possible like you need to have a neighborhood that can see what's happening and come out but like who who there's not enough people to notice if you're like all in detached houses and spread out and yeah you don't know your neighbors as well and like even though like i might not know i know my downstairs neighbors my new upstairs neighbors like i don't know them as well but i can hear them if something happened i could hear it oh and to circle back to that this was very deliberate right yeah oh Nicola's constituency on Eid, like, on the day that the MSPs are being sworn in? Like, she was sworn in, swearing in at 9 a.m. So, like, they almost did it to the minute of when yeah. she was doing it. Yeah. And they really miscalculated. I don't know. <laughs> is it... Do they just not understand? Well, I mean, they have been doing success... Like, oh, God, I hate to use the word successful, but successful dawn raids in Glasgow over the last few months. Just because, like, if they do them actually early there's not people to notice right but like like i don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist but this really felt like i think they thought they would get away with it and this was like power play yeah it was power play like we can do whatever we want to your constituents you don't we can like we like you 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 don't have power here we have the power here like from the home office uh, and they were wrong, and we won. Um, but um, that was a that was a very grave miscalculation. It yeah. was because I think feel like fired up now, like this cannot go on. But like it, it did. It felt so intentional where they did it, when they did it, and we're talking about like the politics of it. One of the things that I think is amazing that happened. And I think this would happen anywhere in Scotland, not just not just in Glasgow. One of the things that's amazing that happened was like our entire political class got behind this yeah and and you know and like uh, you know immediately our you know our first minister and our justice cabinet secretary were like down the line to the home office trying to to sort this out like the fact that um i think i think that's something that i know there was a lot of like talk about like when people were saying oh like this is scottish values now it's different from british values on twitter it's like people are like oh but there's loads of successful anti-eviction protests in england too it's like yeah i'm not saying that people on the ground are different there are great leftist activists everywhere on this island. The difference is, is our entire political class was also trying to stop it. And like, I know we're SNPs, so we're just talking about SNP, but like there were like labor people trying 
like evolved too. The Greens, Patrick Harvey was very, very successful about like getting the message across. Like I know that he, what I, I cannot remember, it doesn't come to mind exactly what he was saying, but I know that that struck to the core of a lot of things. And sometimes Greens can get the message across to people down in England yeah. and Wales a lot better because they don't have the, but they're nationalists. Like, <laughs> Uh, mute mute button for yeah. national. You know, yeah. I don't even consider myself a nationalist. Like, I, even though I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, at a stretch, I'll call myself a nat. I have a hard time with the whole word. <laughs> yeah, because that's just it's very di- it, and they know how different a connotation that is in America in different yeah. places. And mm-hmm. um, it took me ages to join the S and P because I wanted to make sure I knew what this organization is all about. Because to me, and you know, there's only. The, the big nationalism in America is white nationalism. Yeah. And that's kind of what springs to mind. And I don't want anything to do with that. Yes. I have a hard, I had a hard time explaining to my American friends, but yeah, carry on. Sorry. So I, I tweeted out, this is the difference between British values and Scottish values. Um, and a lot of people, a lot more people understood it than didn't. And a lot more people, even though it made them maybe feel uncomfortable. I had a friend text me and she goes, Oh, that, that language, you know, and she's kind of just meh on independence, right? She's yeah. neutral on it, basically. Um, and I said, no, look, listen, so I'm American. I can say I think American values are messed up. Like, I think they're very messed up when it comes to things like Israel and Palestine. I think American values are horrible when it comes to their stance, uh, their official stance on that, that the state of Israel. That's the thing is, like, if you're triggered, and somebody even said, like, well, I'm Welsh, I'm not English, so, like, don't say it's Welsh. I'm like, but I don't blame the English people either. I don't blame people that live in the place who don't want that to happen. Yeah. I'm just saying the British government ordered it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that our, like, the British political class is basically united behind this kind of thing happening, and the Scottish political class is basically united against it. That's it. Yeah. So people need to know like why first safe country is terrible. So first safe country basically says that if you are a refugee, you must claim asylum in the first kind of country that every everyone kind of agrees people don't need asylum from that you come across in your in your journey. Um, I want a country like Canada says that that's like some bullshit because we only share a border with the U.S., which we consider a safe country. Though funnily enough, when Trump got elected, we got a ton of refugees pouring from the US because of how hmm. like fucking terrifying that was. Um the the really it is some bullshit when Canada does it, but it is serious bullshit when anyone in Europe does it because frankly there are only a couple of routes that people are coming into Europe from and they're well there's there's one it's through the Mediterranean, right? So when you're saying first safe country, what you're essentially saying is Fuck you, Italy and Greece. You're the only countries that are going to be accepting refugees now. And if we feel like it, we'll consider an agreement to take some off of you. Um, that also, so that's one, it is completely unfair to the sort of like border countries of Europe. Two, it basically tells people fleeing violence where they get to be told they're safe as opposed to where they actually feel safe. Like, you've seen the treatment of refugees in Greece. You've seen the treatment of refugees in Italy. You've seen the treatment of refugees in France. We're saying those are safe countries. Are those safe countries for refugees? I don't think so. Three, um, it is just, I don't know, to me it's like a fundamental insult to human freedom to tell people 
where they like who are fleeing like especially people who are fleeing just like atrocities where they have to just like well take it or leave it even if they've got family in a different country even if like like what if like you've got a refugee say from Syria who doesn't speak Greek but does speak English and you're going to tell them they have to stay in Greece even if they've got cousins in England and speak English or like Hey, we know that you're fleeing with the clothes off your back and maybe, you know, maybe somebody, some of your family members got killed, but we, we got a little, we don't want all this red tape. So we're going to need you to do some bureaucratic things to help us out. Yeah. Yeah. And like, okay. And then, yeah, I I don't even know what number on my list I'm on now, but the other thing that they keep doing when they say the first safe country thing is they're like, oh, well, like the refugees that we're getting are all young men and we want to like make sure that we're like lifting the most vulnerable women and children from the, it's like, okay. You know why the refugees who make it all the way here are young men, right? Because it is really, really dangerous. It is really dangerous. Not only that, but they can they can make money. They can go and work any job if they're able-bodied yeah. young men. And and the yeah. funny thing is the people saying this... And they can make money to bring their families. The people that are saying this are the people who are all about the economy and all about like people like paying their dues. So like, yeah, they're not sending people who can't work... Or who are a risk, they're sending the people who are able-bodied work, and, and able-bodied is a terrible word, sorry, but they're sending the people who can work any job, you know, yeah. and stuff like that, to be, you know, yeah. a functioning yeah. member of the new society. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And, like, and, and like, of course, if, like, your family can, like, afford to send one person, they're going to send the person who's most likely to make it, and the person who's most likely to then be able to help the rest of the family. Like, it's just, it's, oh, it's just such... Ugh, anyway. The psychology of it is like, they're the mental gymnastics and it it makes me so mad that they've gotten this message to to be in so many people's heads without thinking because there's no logic. Also, also, we don't let asylum seekers work. We say everyone has to like pull their own weight and whatever and then we don't let asylum seekers work and the like allowance is an absolute pittance. Meanwhile, like a lot of the people who come here to claim asylum because people generally in general are smart and skilled and have things to contribute and that also will lead that like when humans are bored that's when what we go we turn to drugs and alcohol or like or to not be bored they will would break the law to work like people like to be busy you know people need to be useful yeah like people like have an intrinsic i mean like i generally believe people want to be useful and will find their ways to be useful if you just let them and we like impose these absolutely immiserating restrictions on people so like this is the other thing right it's like we set up these like no safe country or these first safe country rules and we set up these like limits on migration and we 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 claim that like people are trying to like get through europe to get to us because we're like so amazing and i want to like take advantage of our take advantage of what we offer people nothing when they come here we offer them restrictions and misery. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like the home office is willingly, and, and it can be the U.S., it could be any country, like where it's willingly enabling that uh, to make their own political points in the areas where that's visible and to entrench certain people's beliefs. Like I come from a psychology background and I, I always study individual differences and, and what makes people tick. That's like, why do people do what they do? That's always what I've researched and been interested in. And some of this stuff is just so infuriating and it's so depressing. Uh, but then stuff happens like on Thursday when you're like, you know what? That's why. That's why I can keep going. Yeah. 
Um, I felt like it was yeah. January 6th in reverse a bit, but it's even yes. more than that. At least... They've got good lawyers now, right? And if there's anything we learned about the Home Office from like the number of people who post on Twitter, is that the Home Office seems to give visas on the basis of Twitter clout. Oh, damn. And have you noticed that? No. There's so many people who got their like settled status. There's so many people that are like uh, BBC employees or like have a huge Twitter following who would, were posting about like, oh, my settled status got refused. And then like they'd get a home office reply like in their Twitter thread and then their status is like magically fixed. So like, I'm just saying. That's like, their PR team. That's their PR strategy. Yeah. So you're saying that like when my visa is, uh, when I'm getting close to going, oh, is my visa going to run out before? Like I have that two month gap between settled status and my visa run out. So you're saying I should take to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, look, you know, speaking of, of just like bringing it around to the case of the guy who was in the homeless shelter, um, I I just I, I just googled it to make sure I had my stats right. Um, so so when you're here, and like none of the people, as far as none of the people that were involved with Thursday were asylum seekers, but since we were talking about asylum seekers just a minute ago, um, and the like immiserating conditions that asylum seekers are forced to live under with not being able to work and having just like tiny allowance and like miserable living conditions. What happens when your asylum claim is refused is that basically you lose even that support and councils are actually banned from being allowed to fund shelters that take people who don't have status Oh my God. So I know this is an issue in Glasgow where Glasgow City Council, like there's many councillors who would want to support that, but they're actually banned by the Home Office because it's illegal for them to put public funds into services for refused asylum seekers. Um, so there is one shelter in Glasgow that I believe operates purely off of donations and maybe some churches. It's the Glasgow Night Shelter that is for um, refused asylum seekers. Um, and so they have nothing so not only are they not allowed to work they have no allowance they're not allowed to have any funding for for even the shelters um but here's the thing depending on the year and this is like from an article from the guardian between 50 and 75 percent of refused asylum claims are overturned on appeal i have read that which means these were legitimate, like these 50 to 75, 50 to 75 percent of, I mean, I hate the phrase legitimate asylum seekers because I think if you feel that you're in danger in your home country, you probably are. But, um, you know, legitimate according to our legal system, 50 to 75 percent of the people who we were trying to deport are, according to our legal system, eventually legitimate refugees. And that's just, uh, yeah. Um, and they, we put them through this, this, this period of absolute misery where we can't even supply shelters let alone adequate housing and you know when you're living off of nothing as it is you know that can mean make the difference between literally life and yeah. death you know it's not being dramatic so what yeah. you're saying is is that yeah if you want to support independence and scottish values instead of uh donating to uh, a blog instead of donating to a court case Instead of donating to all this other stuff, if you donate to the night shelter in Glasgow. Donate to the Glasgow night shelter. Yeah. And, you know. <laughs> donate to No Eviction Network. <laughs> exactly. And honestly, who will support independence harder? And they haven't gone hungry and they've had a warm bed because some people are like, no, Scotland's not like this. 
and and we're going to show you. We're going to put our money where our mouth is and our, our typing fingers are. We're going to fund this shelter. Absolutely. Solidarity with all of the people of Scotland. That is everybody who lives here. 100%. And now, the moment we've all been waiting for. It's time for Aaron and I to air our current political beefs. Do we want to do what's bugging what's been bugging us? Uh, if we do, I'm going to end up launching into an hour-long tirade about the Rangers. Oh, right. I was just thinking more about, you know, uh, like um, the election. You know what? There was some tactical voting for unionist parties by unionists. Yeah. But there was also some tactical voting for progressives. Yeah. Right. So, like, I care about independence a lot. But I also think that um, sometimes I think that folks like from the ABLA party... Um, mm-hmm. Who, who think that just getting more people who support independence into government is the best thing. I think that's wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think that a bad independence MSP will tank the movement yeah. and will hurt independence. You know, not that they're trying to do it, but I sometimes think that, like, sometimes you do more harm than good. Yeah. So there was some tactical voting yeah. for progressive candidates. So the, it, what bugs me is that the narrative is like, oh, they're just all voting for the unionists. And that's why we didn't win. Well, I think some in some cases, there are different candidates that uh, were not elected yeah. because yeah. Uh, independent supporters might have voted for someone else because they didn't want a non-progressive, socially conservative, or just, you know, an all-around bad politician elected. Yep. I um, have a possibly even hotter take on this, which is I don't think we should be complaining about unionist tactical voting. I think that's a bad move on behalf of the party. Like, I mean, the party officially hasn't been, but like a lot of people in the party have been complaining about unionist tactical voting. And actually, I think if unionism is your number one political priority, then you have every right to vote for whichever parties you think are going to deliver that. If unionism is more important to you than being conservative or labor, then you have every right to vote conservative or labor, either one, even if that isn't the party that represents the rest of your political interests, if you think that is the number one issue to you. Yeah, you know, so yeah, I'm not complaining that it happened, like, because... Oh, no, 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 I agree with you. No, 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 I, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you, I'm just saying that's reminding me of, like, what I've been seeing on Twitter, and... And, like, I don't think it's up to me, like... If you didn't think about who you're voting for or whatever, I, I guess that's on you. If you didn't vote, that's on you. Um, I don't think it's going, oh, well, we would have won unless that. It, the problem is with the people yeah. who didn't win. Like, if I didn't win, if I stood mm-hmm. for election somewhere and I didn't win, that's on me. And on circumstances, yeah. but it's mostly I have to take it on board and continue. And I'm going to be complaining about it. I'm not yeah. going to blame it on XYZ externally. Yeah. Now, um, if we're going to talk election election beef, yeah. I have serious beef with the Electoral Commission. I think we all have serious beef with the Electoral Commission. Um, this independent green voice thing should mm. not have been allowed to happen. Um, so, like, we can talk about tactical voting all we want, and that's fine, and I completely agree with you on that. But we lost out on two what would have been excellent green MSPs. Yep. Because of 
what happened. So for any listeners who don't know, basically there's a party that exists called Independent Green Voice. And theoretically, this party's been registered since the early 2000s, but it basically has been a non-entity that has not done anything basically since then. Um, and some actual, and I like, I am not, I'm not doing the internet exaggeration thing. Mm-hmm. Some actual fascists, like ex-BNP members, like actual fascists, basically used this pre-existing party to contest the list in some seats in Scotland this election. They did, like, no campaigning. They basically don't, for practical purposes, exist. But they were allowed to register. The Electoral Commission allowed them to register with a logo that was basically just said green in big letters. And it said independent voice in really tiny letters. But if you were just looking at the logo on your list ballot, I'm sure a lot of you noticed this, it just said green. And it had a leaf, right? Yeah, it had a leaf. Yeah, it was like a leaf-shaped sort of oval, and it said green. And um, they got in the sort of Glasgow region something like 2,000 votes. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but there is no way that they had 2,000 votes that were not confused green voters. There's, there's no, there aren't 2,000 eco-fascists in Glasgow. I'm sorry. Like, and I mean, when we look at the votes that the actual, like, out and out advertising who they were fascist parties got, it was like, what, 47 for Jada Franzen? And she's a, a bigger name in the fascist space than these people are. Um, so there's just, there's just no way. There's no way those were 2,000 legitimate votes for independent green voice. And the, the Electoral Commission allowed that logo to be used is just unbelievable to me. And they changed it, right? Like, this was something that they kind of snuck by, from what I understand. Yeah, like, I don't think that was their original logo. But there's, there's the fact that this allowed was allowed to happen is awful. The fact that um, two, like, hardworking, like, green activists, like, Kim Long is like, worked so hard on as, as a counselor and it's just ridiculous that she's now not an MSP because of some like lost votes because of an actual fascist party. And these are the people who showed up to the count in Glasgow with armbands and, and like star David. D- different party. Oh, that's different. That was, okay. That was the liberal. So there's another fake party. So there's, <laughs> this is the thing. This election was like fake list parties. So there's independent green voice who they didn't turn up or do anything as far as I know. The other one that did turn up was they're the liberal party. So that's like a fake Lib Dems. So that like the independent green voice is the fake greens and the liberal party is the fake Lib Dems. And yeah, they turned up, yeah, at a count and like harassed Hamza and like had like- They were putting up yeah. Nazi salutes. Yeah. Yeah, and we're wearing the like Star of David patches and like so there were these like spo- like fascist spoiler parties. So like the ones who were out and out and advertising who they were, like Jada Franzen, who went and like tried to get in Nicola's face. There was yeah, there's a liberal party that are the fake Lib Dems, and there's the IPV, which or sorry IGV, which is the fake Greens. So I don't know. There's what not we that do many fascists. <laughs> there just aren't. Glasgow. So I don't know. I don't know what we do to fix this because I am not an electoral systems expert. But like something needs to happen with like these spoiler parties. I do have another grape now. Oh my god. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I have seen stuff. I have seen stuff in in places where it's people who are educated and should know better, um, perpetuating this get rid of the haunt system 
get rid of Dahan. No. And here's the thing. Yeah. No. Big N-O, no. Uh, Proportional representation is the gold standard in democracy. It doesn't matter if you're progressive or if you're like on the right. If you're for democracy, proportional representation is literally the best thing you could have if you support representing the people. It doesn't necessarily mean your party will win. You know, as all the talk of wasted list votes and all this stuff, like I like that I have a system where I can vote for the party that I want and... Mm -hmm. When you look at the vote share and like how many MSPs there are for each party, it's mm-hmm. roughly equivalent. The problem is, yeah. is the first past the post portion of the AMS yeah. system. Yeah. That's what makes, and it's not, first past the post is bad enough in itself. It's the combination of the two that allows for all these shenanigans. Yeah. Now, yeah, if we want to talk about getting rid of the system we have, it's get rid of it to just do list. Just list. Yes. No more constituencies. <laughs> only only yeah. the haunt yes or we can rebrand it we can rebrand it as the jefferson system because that's also yeah, what it's can... called and i always push that because i'm american you know um, <laughs> yeah if we yeah if we want but if we yeah. need to we can rebrand it yes we can rebrand it whatever we want but if if we're, t- we're talking about getting rid of anything it should be getting rid of the the the, the first past the post constituency part of it not the proportional part of it <laughs> and dehaunt is one of the most widely used voting systems let alone it's one of the most widely used like proportional representation voting system um yeah and it it actually to me is a lot more um intuitive than stv for me because stv it really matters how you rank people yeah but dehaunt it's like hey if you vote for the party that you want to support yeah. A proportional number of your votes, of the population's votes, will go to that party. And it also leads to minority governments, yes. which are better. I'm sorry, but a super majority, large majorities are not more democratic. They're not better. They're not better for anyone because it allows you to get lazy. Yes, exactly. I think minority governments are good, actually. And you just have, like, first past the post Westminster brain poisoning, if you can't see that. Like, a minority, if you have a minority, that government continues to be democratically accountable through the entire term of government. If you have a majority, they have a license to do whatever they want for five years. It's not good. Yep. And you got to play up to your opponents, right? Like, if anybody who's played any kind of sports or watches sports, you'd know that if a team is, uh, the best team in the world is playing the crappiest team in the world, it's not going to be a good game. Right, they're the they're not going to be playing to their fullest. It's where you have well matched opponents, where people are do amazing things. Yes, yeah. So like, just stop with this. Like, I know you want to win. Everybody wants to win. Yeah. But that's that's a very childlike view of life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, like cooperation with the people who didn't win the most votes should actually be the, a basic norm in a democracy because that gives representation for the most people. Like. It's not that hard, guys. (laughs) Just look at it as if you lost. Look at it as if you were on the losing side. What do you think is the most fair? Is that Rawls? I think that's Rawls theory (laughs) of justice, right? (laughs) But like, do we want like a fair and stable system where everyone feels like included and like they have a chance at being represented? Or do we want like Westminster, just endless majorities that can do whatever they want, even though the people actually don't like it? And they lie all the time and they do whatever they want. Yeah. They don't actually help themselves. They, yeah. So let's keep to haunt. Let's do away with that talk. Let's do away with first past the post. Yeah. yeah. To do that, we need independence. Yeah. So let's get independence. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs>
married a Scottish um, man in 2012. Or like 2011. Oh, God, edit that. Please don't let them say <laughs> that. <laughs> 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 